James is teaching us, as we go through this book, we're going to see this. James is teaching us the outward working of theology in a practical way. Again, Paul did that in the book of Romans. He gave this whole theological argument in the first 11 chapters. And then he showed them how to live out their newfound faith, their theology. The book of James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's very direct, it's very pithy, and on its comments on life, on wise living. The recipients of the book of James were Jewish believers who were scattered through the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, mainly because of persecution. The content of the book is very, very Jewish. It's rich in Old Testament allusions, also rich in the Sermon on the Mount allusions, which James seems to have been very influenced by. After all, this is James' brother, I'm sure, he heard Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. John MacArthur said, the book of James may well be viewed as a practical commentary on that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I know the girls are on, on their Bible study, they're going through the Sermon on the Mount, so they're going to get a lot out of this. They're going to see the, the closest, the relationship between the Sermon on the Mount and James. And another thing is, at first glance, one could easily come to a wrong conclusion that the book of James contradicts Paul's writings on being justified by faith alone. Especially when you come to chapter 2, where James is insistent on faith without works is dead. But James was in no way contradicting Paul, but actually complementing his writings. James is saying, godly works are an outward manifestation of true, genuine faith. And that's what I said before. This is about living out our theology. In other words, when God saves a person, he or she will bear fruit from their genuine faith. I'm a firm believer that a Christian bears fruit. If you ever read the parable of the four soils, it's about fruit. The three soils didn't produce which represent man's heart. The three soils did not bear fruit. Only the fourth soil, which was commended. Works are a byproduct or result of faith. If I plant a seed for an apple tree in the ground and fertilize it and nurture it, and when it grows to be a tree, I prune it, what happens? It begins to bear fruit. Again, when God saved you, if you're a Christian, you will, make no mistake about it, you will bear good works. Your faith is the root and your works are the fruit. Ephesians 2 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, of, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. That's the root. And here's the fruit. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we can see that works are the fruit of those who have been justified by faith. And I believe that is precisely what James is driving at when you read his book. A person, again, a void of works is a person void of genuine faith. Martin Luther had a big problem with the book. Because he wrongly thought 
that it appeared to clash with Paul's writings on justification by faith. And also because of a less developed study of Christ in the book. He actually called it an epistle of straw. But he didn't remove it from his New Testament. Um, he considered it, he just considered it less significant. As great as Luther was, he was dead wrong here. The book of James is as significant as any other book in the Bible. It's about genuine faith. Listen, every book in the Bible is significant in the plan of redemption, whether it's about theology, the attributes of God, his plan of redemption, sending Christ to the cross, raising him from the dead, or its application of theology, how we live out that redemption. Every book on the, in the Bible is as significant as another book. Another book. The book of James as a whole is a book about genuine faith. That's what it's about. Dr. John Davis, who preaches here, said, Faith doesn't end with what takes place in the soul of man. Faith works its way out into everyday life. What about the genre of James? It's wisdom literature. As you read the book of James, you'll... Find out that it's wisdom literature, just like the book of Proverbs, which is actually countercultural wisdom, as you'll see, and is also one of the general epistles. It's not, a, it's not one of the regular epistles, it's a, called a general epistle. General epistle is, is like Paul's epistle was to specific people, to a specific church. This is just a general, just universal. And the reason James wrote this letter was because of the scattered Jewish believers who experienced persecution and trials and were tempted to compromise their Christian commitment and slip into worldliness. So James, throughout his letter, urges them through warnings and encouragement to live right in the face of trouble, which would show that their faith is genuine. Today, the book of, the James, the book of James is exactly the same. It's to help you as a Christian live out your Salvation wisely in a crooked and perverse world which is acceptable to God. If I may say so, this book is the litmus test of genuine and false believers. May God give us the grace as we go through this book to live the way God wants us to live, but not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that said... Let's begin our journey through the book of James, which will probably take us maybe six, ten months. So in our first section, which we're going to look at today, of this proverbial book, James hits us quickly with, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is not saying, when you go through, if you go through a trial, he's saying, when you go through a trial. In other words, it's assumed that every Christian, every believer will, at some time in his life, her life, will experience a trial. But he gives the reader hope at the onset of his letter. He says, count it all joy. And my prayer for every one of you is that you will view trials from the perspective of Romans 8.28. Which says, and most of you know it, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all trials, all things... Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Please stay with me as we read his word.
James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in, the disper- in dispersion, greetings. Count a little joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Help us to understand your word. Help us to live it out to bring glory to your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My earlier days as a Christian, the pastor and the wife of the church I attended had a, had a son and a daughter, and I remember getting a phone call that their daughter was tragically killed in a car accident. And I remember going to the wake, and I was a young Christian then. I remember going to the wake and looking at my pastor and his wife, who I loved dearly. And seeing the peace in their hearts. Seeing the joy in their hearts. Not that they didn't mourn for the loss of their daughter. Of course they did. They had pain in their heart. But underneath that pain there was peace and joy. Because of their relationship with Christ. Another time I was, I was one of the youth leaders. And we had a large youth group. It was like 80 kids in that youth group. And I was one of the leaders in that youth group. And two of the young people... The young men of that group went on a camping trip and one of them slipped and hit his head and died. And I remember the church was, you know, it was was horrible. So I went to that wake and I looked at the mother and father and they had peace in their hearts. I mean, it was something that I'd never really experienced before. Like, your son just died and how could you be so calm? Because of Christ in their lives. And here's what I want to challenge with you tonight. I always start off with a proposition. You know that. No matter where you are in life, you can experience joy and wisdom in your trial. You're going to go through trials. If you're a Christian, you're going to go through trials. But you can experience joy and wisdom in that. And three points I want to bring to your attention. You can have joy in trials. That's the point that James is making here. You can have wisdom in trials. And you can boast of your position in trials, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Point one, you can have joy in your trials. Let's look at verse one again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So, this is a typical ancient greeting. Simple, it's typical. He says, James, I'm James. 
James, once again, was the half-brother of Jesus. And I, this is where we, we need to think about what he's saying here. He says, a servant of God. Now, James was the half-brother of God in human flesh. He was also one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He was also not the original apostle, but Paul called him an apostle. He doesn't appeal to us and say, listen, I am the brother of Jesus. I am a leader in the Jerusalem church. I was part of the Jerusalem council. I am an apostle. You need to listen to me. He doesn't say that. He just simply calls himself a servant. He was very, very humble. Praise God. Now the word... James uses for the servant is the Greek word doulos and means slave. If you are a slave, you are the property of an owner. In our culture today, the idea of slave has very negative connotations. The reason, and rightly so, because of the abuse in centuries past. But a slave in the ancient world was not always negative. As a matter of fact, a slave eventually could earn his freedom. Uh, But a slave could also, by his own will, become a slave for life because of his love he had for his master. Many times, the master treated the slave as one of his family. As a matter of fact, sometimes the slave would actually get an inheritance, part of the family inheritance. So I think what's going on here, when James or even Paul calls himself a servant of God, a doulos, uh, I, I think it's, it, for them it was a sheer pleasure. And if you're a believer, you are a doulos, you're a slave, you're a servant of God. And it should be a sheer pleasure to be a slave, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not offended to call yourself a slave of God. When someone does something nice for us and treats us kindly and with respect, we would bend over backwards for that person. Well, Jesus Christ suffered and died on our behalf when we deserved hell. It's now easy to call him master. The letter James was writing was to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. As I said before, the recipients of this book were Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, mainly because of persecution, probably, probably because of Herod, uh, one of King of Herod in, in, in Acts 12, when the when he put James to death, not this James, another James, the brother of John, and persecution broke out. So they were scattered. And then James gives this typical greeting. He says, greetings. Now, you might look at that and just read over it, but there is not, this wasn't just a typical greeting. There was, there was thought behind this greeting when James said that. It was to the genuine believer who needed peace and joy in their hearts. For that's what the word means. Rejoice. Be glad. For a non-believer, that's, well, that's nice. But for a believer, that's an encouragement. That we have something to rejoice about for eternity. So that's how James opens his letter. His identification recipients of the letter, and a warm, meaningful greeting. And now, in a succession of rapid fire, like a machine gun, he he fires rapidly topics and gives us the first topic, trials. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
Really, James? Joy and trials? Isn't that an oxymoron? I mean, you're going to have joy in your trials, in your suffering? And then he says this, he says, count it. And that means in Greek, to hold a view, to have an opinion, to consider. The New Living Translation says it like this, consider it an opportunity when trials come. The Greek word for count is an imperative move, which means it's a command. He's not suggesting you to count the joy. He's commanding us to count the joy. Why is James commanding counting joy? To count the joy. Because joy does not come naturally to humans when trials arise. Joy doesn't mean we pray for trials or when we go through them, we act like they're very pleasant. No, listen. When we go through a trial, nobody is denying the pain and the suffering. Nobody. But James is saying, and he's talking to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that you can have joy when you go through the trial. We have joy knowing that there's an expected end with good results that benefit us and pleases our Lord. Well, what kind of trouble or trials? He says various, various kinds of different kinds of trials to different degrees. And what does James mean by trial? Well, in the Greek, it basically means to test or to try. Sometimes it can mean temptation, but in this context, it really means testing. What James is telling his persecuted readers is that the present suffering they are encountering is to purify their faith. Praise God. God has an expected end for our trial, and yes. that's to purify Praise our faith. Yes. It's to test the genuineness of our faith. Dr. Moo says it's not to test them to see if they have faith, but to purify the faith that they already that already exists. Yes. So We have faith, but God's going to purify it. Why can they have joy in a trial? Because it will purify their faith, and it will have this result. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith, what? Produces steadfastness. This is the purpose of trials in your life, so that you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. God wants the Christian to know that there's a purpose in your trial that produces steadfastness. The word steadfastness comes from the Greek word that means endurance, being able to endure. It can also mean patient or patient endurance or perseverance. It's not just holding back your bad temper or self-pity. We can all do that. This is not talking about that. In other words, it is the capacity to continue to bear up on the difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mu again, quoting him a lot today, it says it's like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance. So Christians learn to remain faithful over the long haul when they face difficulty. Amen. When you are facing difficult times due to God testing you, and it will happen again, the trial will actually produce in you a quality of endurance, produce, uh, providing you a patiently and trustingly enduring trial. Paul said in Romans 5.3, he said that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces 
endurance. A good example of patient endurance is found in Genesis. When Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave and Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And then, he, then she lied because he resisted her advances and was thrown into, in, into prison because of her lies. And then the cupbearer, whose dream Joseph interpreted for him, was supposed to put a, a good word into the king so he, could be, so he could get out of prison. But he forgot to do that. So, but all of Joseph's patient endurance paid off. He became second in charge of Egypt. Make no mistake about it. The Bible is not saying that Joseph, in his own strength, endured the trial. But he trusted in God through the trial and God strengthened him. And that's why he endured. And he was very obedient. And that's why he became second in command in all of Egypt. I mean, that's incredible. If you've never read the story of Joseph... Read it in Genesis. I think it starts in Genesis, I think, 40, 40 or 42, something around there. But steadfastness or endurance is not the final goal. Okay, that's where it starts. Verse 4, let's go to verse 4. I'm doing probably more teaching today than preaching because this is a book you have to teach. You have to look at all the little nuances to understand it. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That... You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith, which produces endurance, the result is going to be maturity. James is saying, when steadfastness or endurance is perfected, you will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Three words we need to look at real quickly. Perfect, which comes from the Greek word teleos, and means perfect or mature. Complete, which means complete in all parts, entire, perfect, whole, or lacking in nothing, which basically means to fall short spiritually in nothing, or to lack nothing. What James is saying here is when we stood firm under the burden of trials, trusted in God through it, the full effect of steadfastness or endurance of the trial will result in maturity and a wholeness lacking in no spiritual need. In a futuristic sense, the word perfect goes beyond mature, and I think it can literally mean perfect. In other words, even though we are not going to be, quote-unquote, perfect in this life, our maturity seems to be a stepping stone to perfection when we meet meet Christ face-to-face. Here's what happens. When you came to faith in Christ, God immediately saw you as perfect, because he saw his son Jesus Christ. But experientially now we're being sanctified, we're growing and now we're becoming more mature. But when we step over the threshold of life into eternity, we will be perfect. We will realize our perfection. But we should never lower the standard that James is setting about being perfect. Remember Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which, by the way, Christ has met this standard of perfection on our behalf. But even though we are not going to be perfect in this life, and here's what I want you to hear, you must strive for it. Amen. You must Amen. strive for it. Paul understood that. Praise Paul the Apostle understood that. Let's turn to Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14. He says to the Philippian church, not that I have already obtained this or 
am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. So to summarize, the goal of trials is maturity. Striving for perfection and a wholeness lacking in no spiritual need. That is Christian maturity. And that's what we're after. Christian mature character. When you focus on the end result of your trial, guess what? You can have joy. When you start looking at trials through this, through the eyes of God, through the eyes of the scriptures, and understand what its purpose is, you can have joy. Praise God. I, when I was a new Christian, I had some of my best illustrations when I was a new Christian or when I'm fishing, one or the other, but <laughs> that's one of my best illustrations. So when I was a new Christian... I experienced a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic attacks. Somebody gave me this book by Brumfield, J.C. Brumfield. I don't know how many of you heard it. It's called The Comfort for Troubled Christians. Fantastic (laughs) book. Fantastic book. I would recommend every Christian to get that book. And what that book basically, at least in one of the illustrations, it showed... It gave the illustration of um, a refiner standing by his crucible and having all his metal, his precious metal in there. And he had the fire underneath the crucible and he would stand by that crucible and it would melt the precious metal. And as he turned up the fire, the precious metal, the dross of that metal, the, the, the imperfections of the metal would rise to the top and he'd skim it off. And he'd heat it up a little more and more imperfection would come up and he'd skim it off. And finally, he was able to see himself. And that's what Christ does to us. He allows us to go through the trials because he's skimming off all the things, all the imperfections in our, until he finally looks at us and sees his son, Jesus Christ. You can have joy in your trials. When you look at your trials through the eyes of God, you will have joy. But if you insist on looking at trials, and I know Christians that constantly do this, if you insist on looking at your trials in your life through your sinful eyes, and your comfort has been interrupted, you will certainly lack joy. There will be no joy in your life when you go through those trials. And you'll learn nothing. And you'll be going around the same circle. And I've seen Christians, and I've sometimes been there, where you go around over and over again. Because you don't learn what God is trying to teach you. Some precious, precious things He's trying to teach you. Point one, you can have joy in your trials. Point two, you can have wisdom in your trials. Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. With trials, there is no doubt we need wisdom from above. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. and means the capacity to understand and as a result to act wisely, to be prudent. Wisdom, in other words, is not only knowing God's will, but how to live it out. We need wisdom to live out what we believe. 
Especially when we are going through the trials and the hard times and suffering. When we read verse 4, which basically tells us, as I said before, that when steadfastness through the trial has its full effect, we will be complete, lacking in in nothing. Well, if we lack wisdom, how can we be complete? We need to ask for wisdom. The point is, we desperately need wisdom when we are encountering trials in our Christian walk. We need to be married And I want you to hear this. You need to be married to the book of Proverbs. You need to be married to the Sermon on the Mount. You need to be married with these books filled with wisdom. And there's other books too. These books are packed with wisdom. Not from the world, but heavenly wisdom. And heavenly wisdom in James is what is needed to go through the trials and live the life that pleases God. Now, God delights in giving us wisdom. He says it. He'll give it to us. Uh, You see that in verse 5, the first part of 5. It says, if any any of you lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask God. So there's two conditions if we want wisdom. The first one is, you have to ask God. You should not assume that just because you're now a Christian, wisdom is automatically yours. But someone may object, object and say, but it is automatically mine because the Holy Spirit lives with me. And he has all wisdom. He's called the spirit of wisdom. Yes, in that sense you have wisdom. But when you go through trials and want to live godly lives, you're admonished to ask for it, not to assume it. Amen. We don't assume that we have wisdom. We have to ask. God is saying to ask him for it. In order to activate this wisdom that lives in us through the Holy Spirit, we need to first ask. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it will be given to you. If you don't ask, you shouldn't think you will get it. As a matter of fact, James tells us later on in chapter 4, he says you don't have because you do not ask. We are commanded to ask for wisdom in our trials. Now let him ask is another command, an imperative mood. It's a command. We need to ask. Too many parents in our culture today don't teach their children to ask. They don't, they don't do that. They automatically give what they know they want. God teaches his children to ask. And by the way, the, the verb for ask is not only in the imperative mood which means it's a command, but it's also in the present tense, which means we are to continually ask. When, James, when Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you, Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, translates it like this. Keep on asking for something to be given, and it shall be given to you. Now, when you ask God for something, and it's according to his will, and asking for wisdom is according to God's will, when you're in trials, he will not only give it to you, But he'll give it generously and without reproach, as the second half of verse 5 says. In other words, God will give us the wisdom needed for trials generously. With a single, undivided intent. And he gives us without reprimanding us because of our shortcomings. We don't have to come and ask with shame. Some of us could ask with shame. Because we realize how unworthy we are. Listen, parents who are evil know instinctively how to give good gifts to their children. How much more will God? Jesus showed us that in Matthew 7.11. He said, if you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts or good things to those who ask Him? The second condition for receiving heavenly wisdom after you've asked is don't doubt. Let's go look at verses 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all, in all his ways. Now just because you ask God for wisdom also doesn't guarantee you'll get it. Because asking must be coupled with faith without doubt. And that equals answered prayer. To doubt, in essence, is to doubt God's character. We don't take God at His word. That's what it means. We're not taking God at His word. We don't trust Him and implying He's not who He claims to be. Reasons for doubt. Here's a couple of reasons for doubt. One might think, well, I'm not deserving or worthy, which is all true. But it's not about your worthiness. It is not about, it's about God's grace. Not about your worthiness. Well, one might think, why me? Why is God allowing this suffering to happen to me? And why? And, and, and we start to doubt His love and His purpose for us, forgetting that this trial is not to hurt us, but to build you up in the most holy faith. That's right. James gives us an illustration of what doubting the God who tells us to ask is like. He says, you're like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, I fish a lot, so I'm always constantly facing the ocean. And I see some days... Especially when there's like a, a, um, a northeast wind, the swells are they're like up and down, up and down. And that's what doubting is like. You believe, you don't believe, you believe, you don't believe. Doubting God's word and character is not really believing. And James tells you, you will receive nothing. Yeah. You know what I love about James? He's straightforward, Amen. he doesn't pull any punches. He's not like many of the preachers today that just, they want to, they're afraid to offend. James doesn't care to offend. He cares about getting the truth of God out. Now, we can all have occasional doubts. That's not what James is saying here. But we need to extinguish the doubts with faith and trust constantly. You know, you know what's a good thing to do? Doubt you ever hear this? Doubt your doubts? Yeah. Doubt your doubts. When you get doubts, especially about the word of God, doubt that. And when you doubt, James says you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. A double-minded man is one whose affections are divided between faith in God and the world. He's uncertain about the truth. Do you ever meet people like that? They're uncertain. They believe and then they don't believe and... He's unstable and he's restless in all his ways, which contradicts one's claim to be a child of God. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate one and love the other. He's specifically talking about money, but you can apply this here too. In the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to love God with an undivided heart. And Jesus reiterated that in the gospel. Dr. Douglas Moose said, the double-minded doubter wants wisdom from God one day and wisdom from the world the next. Why is James seemingly harsh? Well, he wants to get 
Our prayers answered when we desperately need wisdom in our trials. He wants us to settle our doubts once and for all. He wants us to trust in God's faithful character or faultless character. He wants us to succeed in our trials. He doesn't want us to trust in human resources but in God alone. That's why he seems harsh, but he's really not. He's just trying to get us to see clearly and to see us look at our trials through the eyes of God. I don't believe... And I believe James is talking here about the double-minded man and all, all I've read. He's probably talking about an unbeliever. And I don't believe that every person who says they are Christians are Christians. And the reason why I say that is because I meet a lot and know people all the time who are just like James in the person he's describing. They believe God and His Word and they don't believe God and His Word. And as soon as they go through a hard time in his life, they say, where's God? We have a family member who believes one of the other family members because he said the sinner's prayers, sinner's prayer 30 years ago, that he's a Christian. But yet there's no fruit. And yet when we talk to him about the Lord, he argues with us. Is that man a Christian? You could have joy in your trials, point one. You could have joy, or you could have wisdom in trials. And point three, you can boast of your position in trials. Verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly, excuse me, one second. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the tree he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauties perish. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Here James is contrasting the boasting of the poor and the rich in their trials. First he deals with the lowly, the person in humble circumstances, the poor. He's saying they should boast in their exaltation. There was a good chance that when persecution broke out and the Jewish Christians were scattered... They left behind everything and they were now poor. Or it could have been that they were just poor to begin with. In any case, James encourages them to boast in their exaltation. When he says boast, the Greek word can also mean to glory or to rejoice. By the way, all boasting is not sin. Boasting in the Lord is not a sin. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and also Jeremiah tells us that. And they all say, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. So that's a good kind of boasting. Uh, the believing poor are to boast in their exaltation. What is he saying there? And he's not talking about the unbelieving poor. He's talking about the believing poor. The poor brother in Christ. The poor believer may be a social outcast in the eyes of the world. But the Lord wants them to know that in his kingdom they are an exalted. They are of an exalted high position. He wants them to get their eyes off their present situation, which is rejection by the world and poor financially. And he wants them to put their hope in their inheritance in Christ's kingdom that awaits them. James 2.5 says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So because the trial they're going through of being poor and outcast, they can be tempted to be resentful, they can be tempted to be depressed, jealous of the rich, and so on. But James encourages them to glory in their high position as heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. Now James contrasts the poor with the rich. He tells the rich, 
which most believe is which most believe are, are rich Christians. Some believe that they're not Christians, but I think the consensus is that they are Christians that were rich. He says, for them not to glory in their wealth, but in their humiliation. He tells the poor to glory in their exaltation, but he says to, for the rich to glory in their humiliation. In other words, don't pride yourself in money or your high position in life, but pride yourself in your humble state. In other words, your identity with the one who was despised and rejected by the world. Your identity with your brother who is poor. In that sense, they have to humble themselves because the world is holding them in high esteem. In the ancient world, you were considered favored by God if you were rich. But James is not saying that. He's saying, don't think highly of yourself the way the world views you. And Jeremiah says it the best. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, he says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You want to boast? Boast in this, your, your identity with yourself with Christ and rejoice when they reject you and persecute you. Identify with the poor and the, the afflicted brother. If you're a rich person, that's the way you boast. Praise God. <clears throat> and James also gives us two illustrations which we, which we read before that show the rich, he shows them the brevity of their material wealth that it's here and gone. Now listen, we live in America. And most of us, compared to other countries, our standard, we're, we're, most of us are rich. Compared to the poor people in, in, in countries like the Sudan and the Christian suffering over there in North Korea and, and parts of China and, and a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, we're rich compared to them. But James is saying it's here and gone. In the midst of the rich man's pursuits, it's going to fade away. Material wealth will fade away, but eternal life and all the blessings of Ephesians, if you never read it, chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, will never fade away. Is James condemning wealth? No, because there's plenty of rich people in the Bible. But, but God, and God gives more to some than others. That's his prerogative. But the rich believer needs to be good stewards with their money, what he has given them. They are in a position to help the poor and to supply the needs of the church. Of course, that doesn't mean the poor does not have responsibility of being generous. We all have responsibility of giving. I mean, Pastor Brian preached on the Macedonian church and how they were so utterly poor, but yet they were so generous in their giving. So this is not about giving. All giving, well, the poor or rich has got to be motivated by God's grace. But James' point here is not about giving. It's about, as Dr. Moose says, Christians must evaluate themselves by spiritual and not material standards. Again, the poor person in a trial 
Rejoice not in your poverty, but in the fact that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Boast in your exaltation. The rich person, rejoice not in your wealth, but in your humiliation. That you identify with the sufferings of Christ. That you're rejected by the world. And that you realize and identify with the poor person who you are no better than. I have been seriously fishing now for many years. And over the years I've accumulated some good fishing gear, some good rods. Some good reels, some good tackles, even clothing. Because I take it serious and I love doing it. But all that fine equipment means nothing if I don't catch fish. (laughs) I don't evaluate myself by the equipment I have, but by my catch. If you're poor or rich going through trials, you must evaluate yourself, not by material standards, but by spiritual standards. Are you glorifying God in either your exaltation or your humiliation? Let me conclude here. The Bible is very clear about anyone who truly belongs to him will experience trials and hardships. I mean, that is without a doubt. But it's not for your destruction, but it's it's for God to purify you so you become Christ-like. In eternity, you are going to be so grateful for God allowing you to suffer the trials that you're going through. Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4.17, and I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Paul said this, he said, Our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. May you look at your trials from a new perspective from now on. And if you do, you're going to have joy in suffering. God will grant you wisdom as you ask for him in your pain. And you will glory in your exaltation or humiliation because being rich or poor won't be the issue, but your position in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a timely word in America for the Christian church. We thank you for James that is so relevant for us today, Lord. God, I pray that you'd help us, God, to have joy in our trials. And then when we're going through trials, God, I pray that every believer here in my hearing will ask for wisdom when they're going through trials. And I pray that they will boast in their either exaltation or humiliation, whatever the case might be. God bless your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.